This week, we're presenting our mid-year outlook. When will the market pain end? Here's what matters. Live from New York City, I'm Lauren Goodwin, and this is Market Matters from New York Life Investments. In this podcast, we bring you the best insights from across the New York Life Investments platform because we believe that by sharing perspectives and engaging with you, our listeners, we can all become better investors. Welcome, everybody. It's the week of July 11th, 2022. And this week, we are so excited to kick off a series of episodes that will dive deep into themes we cover in our multi-asset mid-year outlook. That was released this week, and all of our discussions in the past few months have been dominated by the theme of market volatility. So we're going to tackle that head on. The two key investor questions we're hearing these days are, number one, when will all the market pain stop? And number two, are we headed for recession? So we do our best to answer those in the outlook. And of course, we also share our top conviction investment ideas. We're going to cover all of this in the next few episodes. And the written piece is publicly available at NewYorkLifeInvestments.com. Just click the insights tab. But to start off with a nice, juicy, bite-sized piece of this, Today, we're going to cover the question of when this period of market pain, and by that we mean heightened market volatility, bearish price action in stocks, and coinciding negative returns in the fixed income space, when is this pain going to stop? And spoiler alert, we don't have a crystal ball. Nobody does. But what we can do is hopefully break down the why of all of this. Why is the market suffering the way that it is? And hopefully help our listeners to make sense of things. And to do that, we need to go back to the COVID era. Ugh, no, nobody wants to hear about COVID anymore. Well, it's less about COVID itself and more about what governments around the entire world had to do to get us through it. In a nutshell, we saw massive fiscal spending on stimulus, health, direct payments to households, business support. And to finance this, let's zoom in on the U.S., though many other countries followed the same path. The U.S. issued debt, about $6 trillion of U.S. treasuries. And in order to stimulate the economy on the monetary side, the Fed ended up buying about $5 trillion of core bonds. All right. Worth stopping you there because our economically minded listeners might be saying, wait, $6 trillion in treasuries issued and $5 trillion in core bonds purchased. That sounds a lot like the government financing itself. In other words, monetizing its own debt. And that is a huge no-no in traditional economic theory because in historical examples of debt monetization, Argentina comes to mind, it's tended to cause inflation. Governments can't just print money to pay off their debt without some other consequence. And there we have it, the link between COVID and the economic situation today. Yep, there we have it. But the good news is that all that fiscal and monetary stimulus worked. The economy experienced the most rapid recovery it's seen from any downturn in modern history. But we're seeing the side effect of all that today, which is inflation. Inflation's risen and gradually started to feel out of control. As a result, the Feds had to restrict policy and raise interest rates, moving backwards from where we were just a couple of months ago. And there's still likely much more ahead in the current interest rate hiking cycle. Exactly how much is the big question. Right. And that question of how far the Fed will need to hike interest rates to contain the stubborn inflation, in other words, how hawkish the Fed is going to need to get, that has been key for markets. And as that hawkishness has risen, U.S. stocks 
and bonds have fallen this year, and equities have entered official bear market territory last month. So Lauren, can you just explain a little more about why this upward shift in interest rate expectations has wreaked so much havoc on the market? Yeah, it's a great question because people tend to think of interest rates as impacting bonds most directly, but there there's quite broad impacts across the market. Let's see. Rising interest rates can filter through the markets through sentiment and in a lot of fundamental ways. When it comes to bonds, which I mentioned, higher expected interest rates impact bond market pricing directly. For equities, they can result in a higher discount rate for equities, which creates a drag on stock prices. And over time, they can also contribute to slower economic growth. And slower economic growth impacts both stock and bond issuers alike. This is why this narrative around peak hawkishness and central bank policy matters so much, because as long as there's uncertainty around the trajectory of interest rate policy, the market volatility we believe will continue as well. So then if you buy into this framework, identifying when the pain in markets might end requires a pinpointing of when this hawkishness could peak. And that's difficult to do, not to let ourselves off the hook. But the Fed puts out what is called the dot plot every quarter. And that is a scatter plot of each FOMC member's expectation for interest rates over the next few years. So basically, the Fed's own unofficial interest rate expectations. And you'd think that that would be pretty accurate because it's coming from the Fed itself. But historic data actually tells us it's been a pretty poor predictor of the actual path of interest rates. All right, so we can't let the Fed off the hook too much, but we can't let the markets off the hook too much either because we also have the Fed Fund Futures Market, which has all of the collective smarts of the market baked in there. And you might think that that would be good at predicting the path of interest rates, but it's also historically proven a poor predictor in past cycles. Yes. So even though it is difficult, we do have a series of signposts that we use for what might mark a peak in hawkishness. A lot of these have already been fulfilled, and it suggests that we are close to that peak. Exactly. Think about it as some context to fill in the blanks. If these other indicators that Julia and I have mentioned aren't necessarily good predictors of what's to come ahead, what are other indicators we can look at? And there are a few. As Julia said, those boxes have been checked. The five and 10-year real treasury yields have turned positive. Quantitative tightening has begun, and we've started to see in select pockets of market disorder where liquidity has contracted. But we're missing two pretty important things we feel we would need to feel comfortable that we've seen a top in Fed hawkishness. The first is a market slowdown in economic activity. The logic behind what I'm saying there is that as long as economic activity is steaming ahead, it can, in theory, digest additional interest rate hikes and keep moving further than the market expects. As we've discussed in other episodes, we're certainly seeing a cooling in the economy, but not quite enough to support a peak hawkishness conviction point quite yet. Exactly. Yeah, we're not quite there on the growth front. The other marker that we're missing is any sign of inflation starting to stabilize. And we do get new inflation numbers out this Wednesday. So we're just a few days too early to to give a little bit of additional data there. But similar to your argument about growth, Lauren, as long as inflation is stubborn and grinding higher, which is the situation we have now, the Fed might have to get more hawkish and aggressive to contain it. So it's hard to argue for a peak in that hawkishness. 
The wrench that's really been thrown into the inflation story is energy. It's a component of inflation over which central banks don't have a ton of direct control. And the rise in energy prices in the past few months has been driven by a shock and that has been the war in Ukraine. And that shock has disrupted supply dynamics, so it's therefore harder to predict how that will play out. Okay, so it's it's hard to predict exactly what the Fed will do moving forward, even for the Fed. And when we try to look at some of these other signs of what might drive Fed policy, it's hard to predict those as well. So here it is, our best guess at what we think could happen ahead. We still believe that inflation and therefore interest rate expectations, this Fed hawkishness story, will peak this year. And that's largely because the Fed is so focused on making that the case. The supply chain frictions that have also contributed to higher prices are starting to ease as economic capacity sort of normalizes after the pandemic. And inflation expectations have been moderating. And that suggests that the market believes as well that the Fed will succeed in bringing inflation down. And, and when it does that, it'll be able to pause. At that point, though, when the Fed does succeed in bringing inflation down, the question becomes whether a recession will have to accompany that decline in inflation. Coming up next, we'll keep diving into our outlook and answer that question Julia just posed. Is the U.S. headed into recession? Will the Fed have to slow the economy to a halt in order to bring inflation down? But that's it for today. We'll be back next week for more Market Matters. In the meantime, please remember to give us a like, follow, or review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have a question or topic of interest, reach out to us on LinkedIn. You can also follow our views, including this latest outlook at NewYorkLifeInvestments.com and click the Insights tab. Until then, I'm Lauren Goodwin. And I'm Julia Herman. See you next time. Our podcast is produced by Milo Benamats and our music was composed by the fabulous Zach Young. I will now read our disclosures from compliance. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, which may vary. All investments are subject to market risk and will fluctuate in value. This material represents an assessment of the market environment at a specific date, is subject to change, and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information should not be relied upon by the reader as research or investment advice regarding the funds or any issuer or security in particular. The strategies discussed are strictly for illustrative and educational purposes and are not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. There's no guarantee that any strategies discussed will be effective. This material contains general information only and does not take into account an individual's financial circumstances. This information should not be relied upon as a primary basis for an investment decision. Rather, an assessment should be made as to whether the information is appropriate in individual circumstances and consideration should be given to talking to a financial advisor before making an investment decision. New York Life Investments is both a service mark and the common trade name of certain investment advisors affiliated with New York Life Insurance Company. Securities are distributed by Nylife Distributors, LLC, 30 Hudson Street, Jersey City, New Jersey, 07302, a wholly owned subsidiary of New York Life Insurance Company. Nylife Distributors, LLC is a member of FINRA SIPC.